well, spookier than Jesus on Toast. Howdy. You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share their views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. And I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. Today, we bring you a very spooky story and special episode for Halloween. Prepare yourselves for Texas Ghost Stories. But before we start, what's your favorite Texas horror movie? Well, Mike, I don't generally like horror movies, but I do like the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I haven't seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but I have to say that my favorite Texas-themed horror movie is From Dusk Till Dawn. Well, my favorite movie stars one of the greatest actors to ever grace the silver screen, Bruce Campbell in Bubba Hotep. (laughs) That's a good one. Folklore, and ghost stories in particular are part of the oral tradition of storytelling that's as old as human culture. We can't think of a better way to get a sense of a place than to learn its local ghost stories. As kids, we hear all sorts of yarns and tales, and most of us think that they're universal stories adapted from the cultural subconscious that everybody shares. They're usually given a local flavor, but they aren't specific to any one time or place. These are passed from kid to kid and told over campfires and flashlights at slumber parties. These can be relocated to just about anywhere in the United States or the world with no major changes. What we're talking about here is stuff like uh, the hook-handed killer who leaves his hook on the lever's car at night, or Bloody Mary, where you repeat her name three times in a mirror and she'll appear, and also the the big one, the hitchhiker Harriet, the lady who needs a ride on the side of the road, and she disappears somewhere along the way. These are just things that we grew up hearing. Don't forget about Large Marge. (laughs) Of course, Texas has her own stories, with their origins in specific places and times, We'll be talking about some of the older stories, one with its roots in the very birthplace of the Republic of Texas. Scott, you did a lot of research on this, so what information did you find? I started where we always start with research, Wikipedia, and I didn't find a lot there. Go figure. But what I did do is go to my local library here in Plano, and I found three or four really good books. My favorite one was one called Ghost Stories of Texas, published in 1981, and it was written by Ed Sires. This particular collection of Texana is specifically concerned with a multitude of ghost stories and the related folklore that he gathered by traveling all over the state. It's interesting because he doesn't judge or make any claim to the truth of any of these stories, but presents them in kind of a very academic way that uh, really gives you a feel for where they came from. I also found two books that are more for children. Uh, One's The Ghost Stories of Old Texas, and the other one has the original title of Ghost Stories of Old Texas 2. They were both, one was written in 80, published in 87, the other in 92, and they were written by a woman named Zanita Fowler. And then the other book that I read to get information for this is actually the one that made me think of doing this episode to begin with. It's called uh, Ghosts Along the Brazos. It was published in 1977 and was written by Catherine Munson Foster. This is a book that was on my wife's family's bookshelf her entire childhood and was passed around, you know, when they read these stories and told them to each other as kids. This is the story of El Muerto, the headless one who haunted the prairies of South Texas in the 19th century. So this is perhaps one of the earliest Texas ghost stories to be written down. It was written as a novel, uh, The Headless Horseman, 
1865 by Maine Reed. This is actually one of the few concrete pieces of information I found on Wikipedia. And this tale centers around a headless corpse with a sombrero-laden head hanging from the saddle's pommel by a leather thong strung through the skull's jaw, which comes upon hapless travelers in the Texas Hill Country. Actually, this is a traceable story that's not very ghost-like in its origin. A man named Vidal, who had a taste for other men's livestock, stole horses from the wrong man, a well-known tracker named Creed Taylor, who was as quote-unquote skilled as a Comanche. Yeah, and if you'll recall, Creed Taylor was the the figure in our Gonzales episode that told the story of uh, the cannon being buried along the river. He had a very fascinating life, and I'm sure we'll be doing an episode just on him. Okay, so Taylor and his friend Flores tracked Vidal down the Nueces to Uvalde. Woo, Uvalde! Yeah, where they reportedly ran into the legendary Texas Ranger Bigfoot Wallace, who joined them on the hunt. Vidal was notorious, and it was high time to get that outlaw. They came upon the outlaw and his gang in the middle of the night and shot them down as they awoke. They were determined to make an example to the other outlaws in the area, so Wallace reportedly decapitated Vidal's corpse, strapped it to the saddle, and hung the head from the pommel, and then set the Mustang loose to run off. And he ran off into legend. This legend says that the horse was eventually found and stopped, and the bullet-ridden, mummified corpse of Vidal was cut loose and buried on the Benbolt Ranch which is just south of the town of Alice. Woo, Alice! Yeah, South Texas, baby. Stories persisted for years that a headless spectral rider terrorized herds and cowboys throughout central and southern Texas. Sires makes a point in his book to talk about the fact that there were a lot of other spectral horses all over the state that were probably not related to this one. We also need to note that Creed and Bigfoot Wallace were both notorious for telling tall tales. This ties back to early Texas history of these real historical characters and the tall tales that they did tell. That's an interesting story, but buckle your seatbelts for a really scary one. Behold, the story of the lady of White Rock Lake. A lot of the stories about the Lady of White Rock Lake follow the very stereotypical Hitchhiker Harriet story format. A mysterious lady dressed in white, she's soaking wet, she appears out of nowhere, you're a pair of lovers in their car. You know, there had been an accident, and simply she must get home. But then, she gives an address way across town, she's so sorry to impose, can I please have a ride? But before they arrive to the destination, the lady mysteriously disappears. And then there's nothing but a wet spot on the seat. When they inquire at the house, they find a tear-soaked father, mother, a widower, someone who says, oh, this person had drowned in the lake so many years before. Well, the origins of the story are all over the place. I mean, there's specific versions from the 20s and 30s in Dallas when White Rock Lake was just a secluded recreation spot. But this actual origins of the story go back much further. The Hitchhiker Harriet story or the Vanishing Traveling story goes back to the Middle Ages, at the least. Some people even think that the Canterbury Tales has a mention of it. Sires has a specific mention from a source of his that talks about a bootlegger in 1930s Dallas during Prohibition who had a very fast car and took his lady friend out to a dancing boat on the lake, and they had a fight of some sort, and she ran off the boat and jumped in his car and ran off the road somewhere. My specific connection to this story goes back to 1955, when my uncle, who was a boy at the time, had uh, spinal cancer, and he came to Dallas to the Hoxie Clinic for chemotherapy treatments. When he first arrived, it was in Dallas, and that's where he heard, as a young boy, the story of the Lady of White Rock Lake. 
This story varies a lot. It often deviates in that the residents on the northeast lakeshore report the lady appearing on their porch asking to use the phone. One man related a story of her bringing her into the house and listening to her dial with his back turned, only to turn around and to have her vanish. Of course, she always leaves a puddle to mark her presence. The most credible tale of the lady was chronicled by our good friend Ed Sires again in Texas Ghost Stories, is related to an ex-lawman named Charlie Eckert. He tells of his old partner, Steve Wester, a big man who had time for little more than fact. And he had an encounter that refuses to conform to the Hitchhiker Harriet formula. Late one night in the 1960s, Wester was checking out the marshy area on the north end of White Rock Lake, near Northwest Highway meets Lawther Road, and something seemed very off near the water. So he left his car to investigate, scanning with his flashlight, when all of a sudden he saw a woman, soaking wet, walking out of the grass near the lake. Wester said there was nothing the least bit ghostly or insubstantial about her. She was in her 20s or 30s, quite pretty and well-dressed. The lawman shined his light in front of her along the path she had to walk, and he, as he didn't want to blind her in her eyes. As she walked directly in front of him, Wester finally asked if she needed any help, but she ignored him and continued walking. It was then that he noticed she wasn't leaving a single track on the ground, which was marshy enough to bog a kitten. Was this the White Rock Lady? So Sires speculates that maybe, just maybe, that she was showing disbelievers that she was something more than the hitchhikers heard so much about. So an interesting note about this story is that in the early 1970s, a disc jockey in Dallas on Halloween night asked his listeners to call in with their stories of the Lady of White Rock Lake, and they jammed the switchboard so many people called in with their individual stories about this legend. And now, prepare yourselves for the tale of the ghost of Bailey's Prairie. This story is really the one that gave me the idea to do this episode. My wife had this book in their house growing up, The Ghosts Along the Brazos. She remembers very specifically this story, The Ghost of Bailey's Prairie, giving her nightmares. There was a man named James Britton, or Britt Bailey, who settled in the area of present-day Brazoria County way before Stephen F. Austin established his colony down there. Basically, he was a squatter. He got permission from the Mexican government to come in and settle. He picked his land, and he just made a home. He had a huge reputation for drinking and fighting. I mean, he was the man's man, and he relished every chance he had to drink and fight and drink and fight and drink and fight. The story goes that Stephen F. Austin himself at one time came to visit Bailey after he'd gotten the land grant and forced him to move out because Austin had allocated that land to someone else. Instead, Austin was forced off the land at the end of Britt's rifle. Britt got to stay there. It was his home. He lived out his years drinking and fighting until he died of what they call a fever on December 6th, 1832. I think we can say safely that's how we'd all like to go. Fighting and fighting and drinking. Fighting, fighting and drinking. And then fever. And then he died. (laughs) But what really starts to make this story interesting is that in his will, Britt had some unique requests. Uh, According to Sires in his book, he says, and this is a quote, Bury him erect. He had never bowed to any man. Face him west. He always aimed in that direction. Place his rifle by his side. Who knew what enemies awaited a man in the great beyond? And at his feet, leave his jug full to the cork. Actually, my will too, Scott. And I've never heard the story. That's amazing. (laughs) Now, reportedly, either the preacher presiding over the burial or Britt Bailey's wife refused to include the jug. They followed every other stipulation of the will, but they refused to put the jug of whiskey at his feet. He'd always had it with him in life. They decided he doesn't need it with him in death. Now, apparently, this was what started Britt haunting the area. 
The first appearance of Britt Bailey's ghost was in 1836 when a family had moved into the old Bailey house. The woman of the house awoke in the middle of the night, sensing a presence. Looking to the door, she saw a dark, man-sized shape reaching toward her, getting closer, but not appearing to advance. Soon, the shape was looming over her bed, reaching for her. But it wasn't reaching for her. It was reaching under the bed, groping for something there that it couldn't find. She must have gasped because the shape retreated to the door, then disappeared. The next day, the servant girl related to the new resident that the previous owner, Britt Bailey, had died in the very bed four years earlier. Do you see these goosebumps on my arm, Scott? Do you see the goosebumps? Well, in subsequent years, the ghost has appeared as a spooky light on the plains of Bailey's Prairie, uh, which was named for Britt. And it's said to be Britt's lantern as he searched for his missing jug. Appearances of the light were frequent in the 1800s, but lessened over the years. An interval of seven years was maintained for a while. In 1939, a driver was run off the road. There are some more appearances observed in 46, 53, and 60. I couldn't find any specific references to anything after that, so maybe he finally found his jug. I do know that reading this story or having her siblings tell Angie this story, Bailey's Prairie's still there. It's there at West Columbia area. Every time they would drive through there at night, Angie would just freak out and get goosebumps and be really, really scared. But I think it's interesting the first time his ghost was seen was 1836, which was the year of the Texas Revolution, Texas Independence. And Bailey really represented an old style of settler, a pre-Anglo settlement settler, the squatter who just squatted in the land and didn't really conform with the new Anglo society coming in. So I think that's interesting that this ghost representing an older part of Texas history is really seen first when Texas becomes independent and continues to be seen until pretty much the centennial of Texas's independence. This is all well and good, but John, do you have something from West Texas? Next story is the story of the Haunted Baker Hotel. When I was a kid, there was this huge building in Mineral Wells, which is a small city just west of Fort Worth, where my grandparents lived. This building was the Baker Hotel, and it was this massive 14-story decaying building, which was in the middle of this country town, out in the middle of nowhere, and it had just dominated everything in the whole town like a monolith. You couldn't really avoid this grand, strange building because everywhere you drove, you could see it. It had these beautiful colonnades and these empty often broken windows just staring out at you as you drove by it or walked by it. And you couldn't help but get the creeps whenever you saw this building. It turns out there's actually a lot of history to this building. It was built in 1929 as part of the Baker Hotel chain, and it was a health spa to take advantage of Mineral Wells' medicinal waters, which is just natural spring water, natural mineral water. And people went there to get well, to get healthy, before you know they discovered penicillin and things like that. Foolish Western medicine. <laughs> Right. So there, this building had 450 air-conditioned rooms, and it had the very first swimming pool that was built for a hotel in Texas. It had air conditioning and a swimming pond? And a swimming pond. And a grand ballroom, a spa, gymnasium. It was a fantastic resort-type hotel. Fancy. Yeah, Scott. And actually, many celebrities stayed there over the years, including Glenn Miller, Clark Gable, Judy Garland, the Marx Brothers, the Three Stooges, LBJ, and maybe even Bonnie and Clyde. By the 1960s, the business was in steady decline, and the hotel actually finally closed for good in 1972. And since then, the hotel's just sat empty, though there's been numerous attempts to revitalize and renovate and reopen the hotel. There's currently a plan to do that right now. It's going to cost about $50 million to do. 
So mostly since the 1970s, it's just sat there and decayed and fallen apart over the years. And the other thing it's done is collected ghost stories. Thank goodness. Finally, ghost stories. (laughs) Get to the meat. Yeah, there's a bunch of them, Mike. Paranormal enthusiasts and ghost hunters have claimed for years that the, the Baker Hotel is heavily haunted. People who go in there hear voices and shouting. Doors get shut and opened. Windows get shut and opened. There's a feeling that people have of getting touched or pushed. They claim that it's colder in some rooms than it is in others. And this was even featured on an episode of Ghost Adventures late last year in December. Can I just say, I don't need ghost hunters. I don't need ghost adventurers. I need ghost finders. Or I need ghost busters. Right, exactly. Ghost, ghost photographers. Ghost photographers would be an amazing show. And, and maybe a witch smeller from here or there. <laughs> okay, so uh, a lot of these ghost stories have a really seedy element. A lot of these stories have to do with sex, drugs, prostitution, murder, suicide. And I think this element ties in with the perception that opulence leads to decadence. And there's really, if you've ever, ever been to Mineral Wells, there's nothing more opulent at the time. And incongruous than this huge building that is essentially in a small country town. We all read The Great Gatsby. And I've actually been to this hotel. I've been inside of it. Did you see a ghost? No, I didn't see a ghost. But I'll tell you, in the 80s, they were going through one of their periodic, we're going to renovate the hotel periods. And the ground floor is actually retail that opens out on the street. And then there's, there's hallways connecting back into the hotel. And to get to the restroom of this one restaurant we went to when I was probably an early teenager, you had to go down this hallway to the bathroom. And looking further down the hall was a a staircase leading up to the, the main entrance of the hotel. And it was very dark. And it was really creepy. I mean, you you could kind of see up into the hotel itself and kind of see this hints of what's in there, but it's all in shadows and in darkness. And I, I got to tell you, uh, I was I was pretty scared. I was pretty creeped out by that that whole experience. And that's really stayed with me over the years. So now, now every time I, I've, I've been to Mineral Wells and seen that that building, I can't help but think about that and, and these 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 windows that that. You don't really know what's going on inside there. It's a really creepy place. I've never really been to a place like that, but there was one story when I was a kid that I heard a lot about, and I never actually checked it out myself. Everybody always talked about the face in Galveston. I did the research on this, and the story of the face goes that when UTMB, University of Texas Medical Branch, was building their compound in Galveston, there was a particular piece of land they wanted to expand to, and the owner of the land didn't want to sell. And he even told his kids, he's like, when I die, don't you sell my property to them because I don't want them to build anything here. Well, of course, he died and the kids sold their property and they built their building. After they built the building, it was one of those prefab buildings with the separate concrete panels, you know, like a grid on the side. And one of these panels, a face appeared. A spooky face? Yeah, like a spooky face. Kind of like a Jesus on toast kind of picture. But Jesus on toast isn't spooky. Okay. <laughs> well, spookier than Jesus <laughs> on toast. Kind of like but... Bella Lugosi on toast. Oh. How about that? <laughs> So anyway, this face appeared on there, and as the story goes, they sandblasted the face off, and then the face appeared one panel lower. They sandblasted that one off, and then the face appeared again on a third panel further down. And they stopped there because if it went down any further, it could get in the door. Now, I don't believe this is a real ghost. It's just one of those goofy things, but I have seen you can do a search on the internet, but there's actually somebody who took video of the face on the side of the building at UTMB. And if you look at it, you know, just like if you look at that Jesus on toast, if you look at it just right, it's like, yeah, I can see a face there. There's a face of some sort. Our human brain picks out a pattern. But I 
pretty sure it's not actually a ghost. But I remember as a kid, people talking about this ghost that made a face appear on the building. And I believe the local mythology is that it's it might be Lafitte's, John Lafitte guarding his treasure or something. Yeah, that, that was mentioned in one of those Texas ghost stories books for kids. And I think that's just, you know, like we talked about, when we talked about Lafitte, he's part of the mythology of the area, and it's like, let's tie him into everything because people love pirates. It's interesting as we talk about these personal stories. So I reached out to my mother and her siblings and talked to them about their experience with ghost stories because growing up, I never really had that firsthand experience like at the abandoned hospital. However, there is a fantastic abandoned hospital in the city of Yorktown, and that's Yorktown Memorial Hospital, which has been featured on the Ghost Hunter Show. So Yorktown Memorial Hospital was opened and operated by the Felician Sisters, and it was a Catholic hospital. It was opened in 1948, and it was supposed to memorialize area men that fought in World War II. So there was all these donations that came in, and the hospital actually opened around 1951. The hospital successfully operated for a long time. It's right near Nordheim. It's where Yorktown is. The hospital opened in 1951, and operated for over 30 years. A couple of interesting points while the hospital was in operation. The first is there was reportedly a doctor who practiced well into his 90s, and then the Texas Medical Board had to step in and force him to retire, particularly in light of potentially some errors he was making due to his advanced age. Additionally, there was reports of a very high death rate for the hospital. There were over 2,000 deaths for the hospital. Is that a lot? It's for some people, it's a lot. One is a lot for some people. <laughs> In 1986, the hospital closed because a larger hospital had opened in Cuero. The facility was repurposed into a drug rehabilitation clinic, but it didn't last for that long. There were a lot of incidents there. They had some trouble. And in fact, there was a double homicide that happened in the basement of the building when one of the residents freaked out. At this point, the hospital closes, and it's been sitting there in its current state ever since. This weird 1950s abandoned hospital. It's been used as sets in movies. It's been featured on shows. They do private ghost tours. And the people who go in claim very much that you can get pushes, you feel cold, you see figures, you actually encounter full torso apparitions that people run into. There are nuns that were on the, the restricted floor on the top stairs. And there's one ghost in particular they claim doesn't like women and doesn't like men with tattoos. And there people give these very firsthand accounts of like having actual physical people encounter this in the, in the hospital. Uh, and it still exists today. You can actually go to the Yorktown Hospital hospital website and you can sign up for a tour and you can actually pay money and spend the night in an abandoned hospital. Sounds like fun, huh? So the Yorktown Hospital's one connection. The other is a very brief one. The old Butler house was right in the middle of Kennedy, the town where my mother's family is from. It was torn down in the mid-60s, and the location is right next to Butler Cemetery, which is right next to Kennedy High School. And the house was a three-story, very gothic, Munster's Affair type of house. And long after it was abandoned, my mother's cousin, who was much older, would tell them when they were young kids these ghost stories that he actually had seen lights turning on and off and in the house and things moving on the third floor when it was clearly abandoned, boarded up. Uh, and it's very, you know, it creeped them out as six-year-olds. Right, there's nothing better to tell our children than horrifying ghost stories about spectral uh, settlers and crazy headless horsemen and <laughs> houses that have lights to turn on and off. Okay, so today we talked about several of the stories, several of the ghost stories that have real roots in Texas folklore and history. There's also some others that were are probably worthy of their own episode, like 
the Marfa Lights. We could probably spend hours talking about just that one. There's another one, La Llorona, which is a tale that's shared throughout Latin America. It's the main thing to think about that I really find intriguing about Texas ghost stories and about all of these is, as you said, they have roots in Texas legend and, and folklore and roots in Texas fact. And the thing about these ghost stories is whether they came from real stories uh, and are based on things that happen in fact, or whether they're part of the cultural subconscious and are common to many different cultures. We in Texas have taken these and really transformed them and turned them into something of ours. And I think that goes into one of the best parts of Texas is we take ownership of things. We own our heroes, we own our monuments, and we own our ghost stories, and we make them a part of our culture and our heritage every day. That about wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show on brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you. So follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstaple.com and leave us some feedback. Be sure to indicate whether it's okay for us to mention you on the show. You can follow us individually, too. I'm Mr. Java. And I'm Max Sean with two ends. And I'm Scotticus. If you like the show, tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes. That really helps us out. We hope you can join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from spooky Texas... Texas wants you anyway. <laughs> <laughs>